Well, good morning, saints. Thank you so much for the privilege of being here this morning. I'm grateful for uh, Pastor Dave uh, and him inviting me to come and preach this morning. I'm grateful to Hart uh, for inviting me. I played with, uh, with the band this weekend and then was able to play with the worship team today uh, and, and sing with them. It's been a real joy, and I'm grateful to, uh, for the ministry, the continued ministry of Redeemer here in Lakeland. As you can tell from the scripture reading, there's something going on about the Holy Spirit in this text that's a little bit unusual. We do talk about the Holy Spirit some in our culture. It's, it's out there. But usually the people that talk about the Holy Spirit, we tend to set them aside. That they're the ones that are a little bit too wild for us. And so we let them talk about the Holy Spirit, but and perhaps they are a little. There is a little wildness there, but the problem is we also tend to set aside the Holy Spirit in the same motion. The problem on both sides for Presbyterians and Pentecostals is that we tend to have our own ideas about how the Holy Spirit works, and those expectations either get met or we get disappointed. And that doesn't give glory to God if the Holy Spirit is at work doing some, something important, significant, and we say, oh, the devil's got me now. Well, that doesn't give glory to Christ and the Father who sent the Holy Spirit to do that very job. So we're going to look at a passage of Scripture Today, 1 Samuel 18 and 19, where the Holy Spirit is busy. He's all in this section, but la, 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 it can't be this. He can't work like this. This not, no, no, it can't be like that. It must be something else. But in doing that, we end up unequipping ourselves to understand what the Holy Spirit's doing today. When I first was told this is what my text was, I read over 1 Samuel 18 and 19, and I said to myself, well, this is kind of the same thing that's been going on for many chapters before, and it's the same thing that's going to be happening in many chapters later. What's going on here that's a little bit different? And the, the work of the Spirit kept jumping out to me. Back in 1 Samuel 16, the very first text that was read this morning we find out that David has been anointed as the king. And as soon as he is anointed, he is called into the royal court to go and minister to Saul. But as soon as he gets there, Saul is thrown into a Holy Spirit-inspired depression since Samuel had anointed David. He didn't know that, but he could sense something was terribly wrong and the Holy Spirit was involved. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. You keep saying Holy Spirit, but look right here in the text. Right here in the text, it says harmful spirit. I did go to school in Mississippi, so we get a lot of things mixed up because of that. And so we're going to have to untangle that. But it's going to take us a few minutes. We're going to have to go somewhere 
first to be able to go back and understand what that is. We're going to have to prepare ourselves for a few minutes to do that. If you've got a big project you're working on, you just don't go out there with a hammer and nails and just start doing it. You have to plan. You have to put together your list that you're going to go to Home Depot for. And then you go back again because of something you forgot. And then you go back again. You have to plan. And so it's going to take some planning to be able to go back and see what the Holy Spirit is doing in chapter 18 and 19. If you'll go on this journey with me, what you're going to be equipped to do is see that the Holy Spirit is active in the lives of believers today, not only for blessing, but for blasting. He will bring holiness, and He will bring harm, and sometimes you won't know the difference. And there may not even be a difference. Because he is so good at Romans chapter 8 style sanctification of all things happening for the good of those who are called to Christ. Sometimes you just don't know. And you just have to trust him while you're going through it. Let's look at the New Testament and put those New Testament goggles on. We know that the Holy Spirit can be a comforter but he can also be a killer. Acts chapter 5. Look at Acts chapter 5. Not going to do the read through the text, but in Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 11, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit about the sale of some property and the amount of money that they were going to donate to the Christian community. And as a result, both of them fell dead when they were confronted by Peter. And this is interpreted and understood to be an offense against the Holy Spirit and therefore disciplined by the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit was active in the early church. And he's active doing things that we don't often talk about on YouTube videos. That we don't often make memes about. Because it's not marketable that the Holy Spirit kills people. That's downright weird and scary. But there it is in the Bible. Let's keep going. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 contains warnings to Christians to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's Ephesians 4.30. And this verse is a reminder to live for God's pleasure, thinking about pleasing God, saying yes to the Holy Spirit and His promptings and His work, and most of all, His Word, instead of no, instead of maybe later, instead of yes, I intellectually assent to that the Holy Spirit could be telling me to do something through drawing my attention to something in the Scripture that directly contradicts what I want to do. I intellectually acknowledge that, but I'm going to do some other stuff right now and kind of not think about that. That's called grieving the Holy Spirit. That's it. The text doesn't say right there in Ephesians what 
the result of grieving the Spirit is, that comes in actually other parts of Paul's writings. It comes when he's talking about uh, the, the, the sword of the Spirit and uh, the prayers of a, a Christian. There's all sorts of language about what God does to equip believers to stand for Him and fight for Him. And, and the inverse is true as well. When you're grieving the Holy Spirit, when you're saying no to living life the way God wants you to, then the, the breastplate of salvation, it's going to have opportunities for Satan to shoot his darts there. If you say no to the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, then you're going to be defenseless. That's the result of grieving the Holy Spirit. There's a lot more to preach about that, but let's move on. And in John 16, verses 8 through 11. John 16, 8 through 11. Very familiar words to believers. And when the Helper comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he explains, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you'll see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so, Jesus is laying out what the Holy Spirit is going to do in this age, in his kingdom, in the future, when he comes in fullness in Pentecost. Concerning sin, the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world concerning sin, particularly the sin of unbelief in Jesus Christ. Think for a second with me. Just think. When was the last time you were convicted of sin. Just sit on that for a second. If you have to think very hard, the next thought is, maybe I need to go read Ephesians 4.30 again. Because the Holy Spirit here says He's going to be convicting people all over the world that includes Presbyterians of sin. It's not a fun time. I don't know if you remember what that feels like. But stopping in mid-step when you suddenly realize you have been the biggest jerk in the room when 10 seconds before you thought you were high and mighty, completely right in that argument you're having with your wife. I've got her this time. I... Oh, man. And God's Spirit steps in and convicts you of sin. Pulls the rug out from underneath your own self-righteousness and pride. You're like Wally Coyote chasing after the roadrunner. You're in midair running and all of a sudden you look down and there's nothing there but air. That feeling is what it feels like when you are convicted by the Holy Spirit of sin. It ain't pleasant. 
I mean, it's pleasant in the sense that it has that cleansing feeling after you respond in faith to it. That's pleasant. That's joyful. But at that moment, no one would describe it as pleasant. That's a work of the Spirit that Jesus says is going to be happening in his kingdom. And we're going to see that it has been happening before then as well in principle. Concerning righteousness, the Spirit convicts concerning righteousness. Pointing to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father. Can you remember the day? Boy, I remember the day. When you suddenly realized that you were not saved by self-righteousness and doing the right things. Instead, you were saved by the righteousness of Jesus and Him doing the right things. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. Jack Miller may have talked about it a lot and did his sonship program and spread it all over the PCA and half the world, but it's a work of the Holy Spirit when he comes and shows you his righteousness. It's sweet and it's good. And it starts being sweet and good a, a, a few seconds after that first moment. But that first moment, it can be very painful. It can be very shocking. It can be like, have you seen those videos online of people who get the, the glasses that enables them to see in color for the first time? 100% of them start crying. They, when babies get hearing aids. They're suddenly able to hear the sound of their parents. They always smile. But sometimes we get information about what's going on that we didn't have before that's very unpleasant. That's, that's surprising in how ghastly we can be, morally speaking. At that moment of discovering that it is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that my hope is placed and that my righteousness is filthy rags. It's nothing. Well, nothing's not quite the right word there, but I'll be another sermon about that. Concerning judgment. The third thing that Jesus said the Spirit's going to be about is judgment. He's going to convict concerning judgment, emphasizing that the ruler of this world, referring to Satan, has been judged and there will be a future judgment for all who follow him. Focusing on coming judgment is pretty negative. We, I was with Hart playing uh, the other night. And there was a preacher there in Plant City. And I didn't get to hear him. Kim did. Kim walked by him and heard him. And his message, she explained to me, was summarized by, you all are going to hell. Every one of you. You're going to hell. Now, rightly or wrongly, whether his, whether his methodology or theology was all straightened out, I'm not concerned about that, but he was rightly saying that you're going to be judged and people were rightly responding negatively to that because it's 
bad news. It's bad news to find out that you're going to be judged for everything you have thought, said, everything you have done and left undone. The things that were done in secret at 3 a.m. that you were sure nobody had seen. Focusing on judgment can be very scary. Talking to your kids about judgment. Talking to your church about judgment. You're all so nice. Father, I want to talk to you about judgment. You're, you're spectacular folks. My point is that the Holy Spirit is involved in some pretty messy business. And that our idea that's been foisted upon us by our culture and our own inner desires to be awesome pretty much relegates the Holy Spirit to the position of helping me and the people around me and my movement, whether it be political, social, whatever it is, to be awesomer. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, is to make the stuff that I want come faster. That's pretty much what we think about the Holy Spirit. And the Bible has... It's just a vastly different story about what the Holy Spirit's work is. Now, one of the problems is, is we don't have, unlike our text, which I swear to you, we are getting back to. I promise you we're going to get there. We don't have the Holy Spirit writing a narrative of our lives and making sure we understand how He's been working along the way, helping us to discern when He's being hard on us and when He's comforting us and loving us and drawing us closer to Himself. We don't have that omniscient narrative to help us understand. But we do have this one. And that's going to help us understand ours better. And it's going to equip us to then be able to talk about the work of the Spirit in the lives of our family, our church family, our extended family, our own hearts. And it's going to help us understand what's going on with Saul today. Going back to our text. The only thing that's remotely new to the story from surrounding chapters is the practical working out of what is recorded in 1 Samuel 16. The spirit departs from Saul. This kingly royal anointing that was placed upon David apparently was a zero-sum game. When it went to David, it went away from Saul. There was going to be one king that was anointed with the power of God in Israel and there was only room for one at a time. So that happens in 1 Samuel 16, but then the Spirit comes back twice. But He comes back in ways that don't fit into our categories. The first time He, he comes back, <clears throat> if you look in 1 Samuel 18, you'll see that the spirit that comes back upon Saul is called evil in the KJV and in that, that family of translations. It's called harmful in some other translations. 
But that isn't a different theology. They're not trying to put across something different. Both of them are saying that the effect, not the being of the Spirit is evil or harmful, but that the effect of the Spirit when it comes is one of bringing harm. For God to send angels that bring down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, who, or send an angel to bring death to King Agrippa, that's a part of the Bible story. We know that happens. We know God sends messengers with warning messages, judgment messages, and with actions that bring great harm to human beings. But if the text is saying that God sent demons, if harmful spirits, if you're going to negotiate and try to say, okay, so these harmful spirits must have been demons, then that would have required, my first response is, is that would have required a lot of explaining on the part of Samuel, the author, who was telling a story not about demonology and angelology, but about how David was above reproach in his dealings with the house of Saul. That's the point of 1 Samuel 18 and 19, is that David wasn't an enemy of the house of Saul. He was best friends with Jonathan. He didn't cause Jonathan's downfall. He loved the God. And he wasn't trying to hurt Saul, as a matter of fact, he came there and was playing his harp and playing music to try to soothe the guy. He didn't do anything wrong. That's the point of the overall story in 1 Samuel 18 and 19. But one way we can see from the text that this is not God's new strategy to send demons to attack Saul, and that's how he's going to bring him down, is right at the end of chapter 19. In the end of 19, Saul is murderously pursuing David. And David is hiding in Saul's backyard. He's hiding just 10 or 15 miles north of Jerusalem in the tribe of Benjamin area, in the area where Saul was completely familiar with it and surrounded by all of his friends and family. So not only did Saul know generally where David was, he knew down to the neighborhood what, where David was. So he keeps sending people to go kill him. And they never make it. And he's like, well, pff, well, I guess I'll have to go handle this myself. And so off he goes with his big sword and probably a couple of other guys walking with him and starts heading out toward his old hometown area. And then he picks up here. He goes to Ramah. He comes to the great well that's in Seku. He asks, where are Samuel and David? And they said, oh, they're at Naoth and Ramah. Well, and he went there. And the Spirit of God came upon him also, as, as had all the other folks who were there before. And he prophesied, stripped off his clothes, and lay naked day and night. Now, this is really interesting, and if I had more time, I would talk about how this connects to David dancing before the Lord and Micah and how that's a very interesting bookend to that. 
We're going to skip over it, but you can investigate that. God is consistently using his supernatural powers here in chapter 18 and 19 in the form of sending angels who served him to protect David from Saul. Now, from David's perspective, this, look, this didn't look harmful. Think about that for a second. God sends angels to protect you. Your interpretation of that from your perspective would be, thank you, Jesus, for sending your spirit to protect me from that situation. How good you were. But the people over here who are mean and nasty and who want to hurt you, they're going, why is God sending this evil spirit my way? This is awful. Why is it keeping me from doing this? That's the way... Saul was feeling. Before chapter 16, Saul was foghorn leghorn, trying to be eaten by the little chicken hawks in the ancient Near East, the Philistines and whoever, and they couldn't stop Saul no matter what. Saul was just fine. He was able to defeat them just fine. And suddenly he became Elmer Fudd at this point. He can't do anything right. He cannot catch that wascally wabbit, David. Because the Holy Spirit has stepped in. Now, is that harmful? Well, not if you ask David about it. David wouldn't have called it a harmful spirit. Which is a very interesting point about the text. Because you could just read this text as political propaganda. That David's people, that, the, that David's party had put this out to show that there should be union between the Benjamites and David's family. And, and that Saul's family shouldn't be trying to kill him in the future. But David would have never written this to say this was a harmful spirit. This wasn't something he dictated to be sent out on Facebook to all his uh, political enemies to try to convince them to not murder him in the future because he would have never called this a harmful spirit. From his perspective, it was the Holy Spirit coming in and protecting him and saving him. So, what's the Spirit doing in your life today? Is He enabling you, empowering you, strengthening you, anointing you for the task that you have before Him, that you have a good concept of what your mission is? Or, do you have no idea what your mission is? You're lost in confusion. You go two steps and you take three steps back. You have no idea what's going on. You have no idea what to do different. I'm saying the Holy Spirit's at work in both sides. And I'm saying it's not so simple to say that this person over here is a little goody two-shoes whom the Holy Spirit is just loving and, and doing nice things for because they're so sweet. Re keep reading the book of 1 Samuel and go to 2 Samuel and tell me that David is that sweetie pie. He's not. And the person over here whom the Holy Spirit is dealing with rather harshly and bringing difficulties into their life they're not bad. 
and deserving of that because of something they did wrong or something their parents did wrong. But it's so that God can be glorified in those specific circumstances in a way that if we could see it, we would have prayed for it. If we would have known God's will, we would have prayed for that exact thing to have happened. So what's the Holy Spirit doing? Is He enabling and empowering? Is He hindering and convicting? Yeah. Yeah, He is. He's doing both. Because there's also, it's also more complicated because there are parts of my life where I need to be comforted and strengthened and empowered and there's parts of my life that I need to be cut off at the knees and humbled. So both of them can happen at the same time in the same person in the same situation. And we got to learn to give the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son the glory for it all. To praise Him in the midst of it all. Finishing up, John 16. You ever been turning in your Bible and there's some pages stuck together? You haven't used it in so long and they're just pages kind of stuck together. We're unsticking some pages this morning, aren't you? Finishing up John 16, 13 and 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, He'll guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He'll declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The good news that I want to make sure you hear this morning is that the, the gospel and Christ's message sets us free from the need to pose and pretend like we know everything. Presbyterians, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me. Because if the Holy Spirit's going to come and guide me into all truth, illumination is what we call that in theology. If He's promised to do that, then I don't need to know everything. I can be more passive about that. I can be less, not less curious, but less suspicious. Less anxious about situations and go into them saying the Lord is going to show me what I need to know when I need to know it but I know this is His will I'm going forward Jesus anticipated as He told them this remember He's preparing them for sorrow for shame, for fear, for abandonment. He anticipated all that for His disciples and sent the Spirit, not so that they wouldn't feel it. He validates their forthcoming tears and lament and fear. He doesn't condemn their tears, but He sends His Spirit to count them. And to comfort them in the midst of it all.
Because God doesn't send the Holy Spirit to Christians to make you strong so you don't ever feel stuff and don't ever get sad and don't ever be afraid. That is not what the text teaches. It's just not it. Jesus understood that and sent the Spirit. Because most of the time, we really need the tears and the fear and the anguish and the anxiety. Because practical holiness usually doesn't come by reading a book about it. It comes when you come face to face with your own limitations. And you finally say, I'm going to depend on the Lord because I don't think I have anything else left. No matter how the Spirit is at work in you today, I promise you, Christian, He's at work in you today. And He's promised to point you to Jesus. The Spirit is following the orders of the Father and the Son. And He's promised to point us to truth. He's promised to reveal to us the things that are to come. And what's coming is so grand. It's so glorious. And you're going to be ready for it. Because through the power of the Spirit, He will fine-tune you as a person, this church as a community. He will fine-tune you for glory. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever blessing and forever blessed. We, your covenant people, call out to you today from a variety of situations. Family, economy, everything. We have some similarities as we stand here together today, but we have some vast differences. And your spirit, Father, we ask you to send him powerfully, obviously, fully, Without any doubt, make it obvious that you sent your spirit today to anoint your people for the great task you have before them. In Jesus' name, amen.